Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Numbers chapter 6. We're going to be there in just a few moments. We're going to look at a passage that Jack has already read. Uh, but we're going to revisit that here in just a moment. This morning I want to talk about the subject of alcohol. And I've titled the lesson, Is Drinking Appropriate for a Christian? You've probably sat in, uh, in a congregation or, or heard in a Bible class uh, lessons on drinking. And I will start, say from the outset, you're probably not going to hear anything new from me. Um, my aim is to pull together some scriptures, and please understand that it's not all the scriptures. This is not an exhaustive kind of study, but I want to make a hopefully what will be a very clear and strong point as we go through in understanding a Christian's relationship to alcohol. And so I hope to, even though it might seem a little uh, verbose and, and there's going to be a lot of scripture, I'm going to have most of them up here on the screen and I want to move through them fairly quickly. Um, but I hope in all that, that the conclusion that we'll draw at the end will be a very simple one. So that is my hope for our lesson this morning. I want to start off with uh, a little bit of scientific background. Um, and in my research I found this, this was from a study, I think it was at UNLV, um, and they published a, a paper. So some of these things are, are applied to modern uh, winemaking, um, but they serve our purpose in, in explaining a few things. How wine is made. Uh, by definition it says here that wine is fermented grape juice. That's what wine is. It says in practice, uh, however, it's um, usually reserved for fermented juice of grapes, or uh, fermented fruit juice is what it says. But in practice, when we talk about wine, it's usually what we're talking about is fermented grape juice. Uh, and what's interesting, what I found in this, is that, that wine is basically produced in nature. Uh, the yeast that's responsible for the fermentation uh, of the fruit sugars are usually present on the fruit skins. And fermentation can occur naturally if the skin of a ripe fruit is punctured. So in order to make wine, you need sugars. And this could be done, this is why alcohol can be made from lots of different things, depending on if they can make sugar. And yeast, or fermentation process. And the wine, the grape, has those things in it naturally. So when the grape is crushed or pierced, all the ingredients there to make wine, to make the fermentation process, to, to make alcohol, is right there in it. Now, of course, in modern winemaking, uh, we'll see here that uh, sugars are added, yeasts are added, all sorts of things are added um, to, to enhance and to um, more yield out of, out of a professional modern winemaker. But it's very, very important to understand that the, the necessary ingredients for wine are right there on the grape, on and in the grape. Um, since grapes are naturally equipped with everything necessary for fermentation, the process is really quite simple. It says the grapes are harvested when the sugar reaches a critical level. Remember, these fruits produce sugars, and so the grapes have sugars in them. And then it, the grapes are gathered, they're crushed, and the juice is allowed to ferment. And it says that juice can be expressed by stomping on them barefoot, uh, I don't know why you would do it with shoes on, but anyway, that's what it says there. Uh, or with hand-operated or electric fuel-powered process. And again, this is modern talking about. It says, once the juice is fermented, uh, or in the fermentation vats, the preferred yeast is added, 
And it says there, although fermentation could take place without additional yeast. So the process of winemaking could just simply be gathering the grapes and crushing them and then allowing them to, to ferment. The whole process will occur naturally at that point. It says fermentation continues for about eight to ten days. Um, and then after the initial fermentation, there's a second fermentation for about a month. Again, modern processes. Fermentation is complete when there are no more fermentable, uh, fermentable sugar or the alcohol level has reached a level that is toxic to the yeast. So the yeast and the sugar kind of work in combination here to make the alcohol in the, in the, in the wine. As sugar increases, you need more yeast and so forth. Um, and it, what's interesting I found in this is they actually define sweet wine, and we're going to talk about that term a little later on, but remember this about sweet wine. And with sweet wine, the fermentation is stopped before all the sugar has been converted to ethanol. So if you think about that, all the sugar hasn't been converted to ethanol, so it's sweet, right? There's still some sugars in that, in that particular wine. It says, or the sugar must remain after the yeast has died for the wine to be sweet, or sugar could be added and no more yeast added, and that would make the wine sweet. Um, just keep that in mind as we go forward. And the time of aging varies there, it says at the end. So the, the, amount, of pro, the amount of time the, the wine is left to ferment, the higher the alcohol level will be. So in modern processes, eight to 10 days initial and then about another month of um, fermentation. So the wine, the alcohol level is greatly increased over that time. The more time passes, the higher the alcohol content within the wine. So let's talk about some examples we see in Scripture. I want to start with the Old Testament. Understand this as we go through. This is fundamental to both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The context in which the wine is being spoken of is critical. As we mentioned, the definition of wine is simply fermented grape juice. And so you have to look for the context to see exactly how long that grape juice has been fermenting, shall we say. Is it something that is uh, more closer to grape juice or is it something that's, that's been allowed to ferment for a longer period of time and its alcohol level is higher? Keep that in mind as we go through. Context is everything when we talk about wine. Example, Genesis 9, verse 21, speaking here of Noah. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. We know this story well. This is after the flood and Noah plants a vineyard and he gets drunk off the wine. So in the context here, we have to assume that the wine that he's drinking is either high in alcohol content or he drank a lot of it. Because what does it say? It says he became drunk. So in this context, the wine here that's being talked about is intoxicating. And he drank it to such a level that he became intoxicated. A few chapters over in chapter 14 of Genesis, when speaking of Melchizedek, it says Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the God Most High. We know from our studies about Melchizedek who he was. He was a priest of God. I can't, and, and this is something else that we will be saying along the way, God never condones drunkenness, nor does God ever condone drinking to excess. So when it's spoken of in this context, when we're speaking of, of uh, a priest of God bringing out bread and wine, there's no mention of intoxicating drink. 
There's no mention of becoming intoxicated. Rather, we just see the simple um, allusion to the word wine. And this word wine is the same Hebrew word throughout. That's why the context is so important. The context in which the word is used is so very important. Another example, Exodus 29 and verse 40. This is speaking of um, sacrifices that are made to God as, the, as God is, is uh, giving the law to the children of Israel here in Exodus, uh, the latter part. It says, And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. Now, in this context, this is going to be actually poured out as a drink offering, so we don't know if it's intoxicant or not. All it says is it's simply mentioned of as wine. So we're not sure about the context, and that's important to understand because if it's talking about as an intoxicant, it's usually mentioned the, the adverse effects of that wine. Another example, or first let's, let's look at this. As I mentioned, the word wine here, this yayin, is the Hebrew word, and it's the same throughout when we're talking about wine. We'll move forward here and talk about something else. In Proverbs 23, a familiar one to us here. Do not look upon the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. What might you think the context there would tell us about that kind of wine? That's an intoxicating kind of wine. And that's a wine that's being consumed for intoxication. In Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11, as God is laying out the charge against his people, he says this. He says, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. In the context here, this is an intoxicant that's being spoken of. Why? Because it says it takes away the understanding. And this is a charge that God had against his people that's being spoken of here through the prophet Hosea. So when he talks about the wine here, that's the same word, the yayin. And as we mentioned, it's fermented grape juice. And also added there, in the, if you look up a definition, it says this, drunk for refreshment. The new wine that's being spoken of here is a different word. It's the word turos. And that means that it's, it is a wine that has been freshly pressed or separated from the skins. Now, what might you think about that wine? Remember what we said in the, in the early on here, the fermentation process takes place when the, peer, the, the wine skin, the grape skin is pierced and the juice is allowed to mix with the, the yeast, the natural yeast that are present on the skin, on and in the skin. But if you were to take and separate that juice immediately from the grape skin, it wouldn't have that chance to ferment. So you might think of that as simply grape juice. And that's, that's correct. But look how this is used in parallel. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. So what might that tell us about new wine? It tells us that even though it might be separated, there's still some fermentation process that could take place because of, again, the grapes have all the things naturally there to ferment. So even though you might take pains in taking the juice away from the wineskins, there still might be a fermentation process that takes place. That's why the context in which the word is used is so very important. In this context, wine and new wine are spoken of as being intoxicants. 
and it says that it takes away the understanding. Context is everything when we talk about this. Both can be intoxicating in this context. Let's summarize a little bit what we've talked about so far as far as the Old Testament goes. Wine is the general term used for fermented grape juice. We've made that point. This means that grapes have been stomped on uh, and the skins and the juice are allowed to mix together and thus the fermentation process takes place. New wine is pressed wine, although it can still be intoxicating. Again, depending on the context in which it's being spoken of. The longer the wine ferments, the higher the alcohol level is. So if you were to take the wine and stomp on it and drain the vats of the juice and drink it, it would be not fermented at all. It doesn't have time to be fermented. But as it sits there in the fermentation process, as the yeast and the sugars mix together to make the alcohol, it becomes more and more intoxicating. It is the context that determines the level of the, of the intoxicant, shall we say. So if you're talking of Melchizedek, when he brought out bread and wine, it doesn't say anything there about it being intoxicating. And we wouldn't think that the priest of the God Most High would be bringing out intoxicants for the people to engage in. Because as we've mentioned before, God never condones drunkenness. Never, ever. Something else that we should keep in mind. And I haven't really touched on this, but I think it's pretty clear. Strong drink is always condemned in the scriptures. One place, and there's several we can look at for the sake of time, I just picked one. Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. We know from that simple proverb there how strong drink first is condemned because it says there about it being intoxicated and a brawler. Um, and the person who is engaging in that is not wise. It's not smart to drink strong drink. But guess what's in parallel with that? Wine. So in this context, not only is strong drink condemned, but wine is condemned. So the wine being spoken of here is the intoxicating kind, or at least drunk to a level of being intoxicated. If you're there in Numbers chapter 6, I think this, I had Jack read this, we won't read it verbatim, but I think this gives us a, a, a clear view of how God um, sees people who want to serve him and the and what kind of things they might do, what kind of behavior they might engage in for those who are fully committed to serving God. Now, understand that I do not uh, condone or say that we have to take the Nazarite vow in order to, to serve God. I, I, I'm not using that as this is what you have to do. I'm using this as an example of someone who has dedicated themselves to the Lord and what their attitude or what their um, position when it comes to drinking wine is to be according to God's plan, according to God's will. It says there in verse 3 about the Nazarite who's taken the special vow. He says, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. So there's the parallel of wine and talking about strong drink. And the intoxicating wine, we can be rest assured that's what's being spoken of here. He shall drink no vinegar, which is wine that's been allowed to sit for a very long time, and turn into vinegar, uh, whether made from wine or strong drink. So there's an exclusion of 
the kinds of uh, vinegars that could be used. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced from the grapevine, from the seeds, or even from the skin. Now, why might that be the case? It's interesting to think about. Obviously, he's not to become intoxicated from wine or strong drink, but why not even drink grape juice? Well, as you see through this process, what we've been talking about, the fermentation process, if you don't know how long the wine has been sitting around, you don't know how intoxicating it might be. So for the Nazarite, to make sure that he's not drinking, he or she is not drinking any kind of intoxicating beverage, God says don't drink any grape juice at all. Make sure that there's no chance that you might be drinking an intoxicating beverage. Not to mention that you already excluded wine and strong drink, but just exclude grape juice and things made from grapes altogether. Like I said, I don't expect us to not drink grape juice because we already have this morning. But you see the point I'm driving at here is that in these days, especially in the, in the process here before it was refined into winemaking, you didn't really know how much alcohol was present in the wine that you may be drinking. So God fixed that by saying just don't drink any wine whatsoever. A couple of things here, and we won't read these passages either for the sake of time, but I, I see this, these couple of passages here as a bridge to the New Testament. And what I mean by that, in Proverbs 31, verses 4 and through 7, it's mentioned there about kings ought not to drink wine or strong drink. And why is because it says they might forget what is decreed and they might pervert the rights of the afflicted. That makes sense, doesn't it? A king or a ruler shouldn't engage in drinking wine or strong drink. Why? Because he has power over people. You don't want your king to be drunk. Because he might forget what he decreed yesterday. And he might afflict someone because of the bad decision making that he's made. You see, because the wine and the strong drink affects his mind. In Leviticus 10, verses 8 through 11, there's instructions given to the priests about not drinking wine or strong drink. And there it's mentioned about that there should be a distinction between what is holy and what is profane. So it makes sense then that kings and priests shouldn't be drinking wine or strong drink. Keep that in mind as we get on into the New Testament. We're going to come back to that. In the New Testament, again, as I mentioned, it's all about context. Look, if you would, in John chapter 2. In the New Testament, there is, it's similar to the Hebrew, there's a Greek word, oinos, which basically means the same thing as a yayin, the Hebrew word, and that is wine. It's made from fermented grape juice. That's what the general term is for wine. John chapter 2 here, this is the first miracle that we have recorded of our Lord. And we all know it well, don't we? When he changes the water to wine, there's a wedding feast and they don't have any wine and Jesus' mother comes to him and says they don't have any wine. Lots of lessons in there, but for what we'll focus on right now is that Jesus told them to fill the pots with water, verse 7 and verse 8. Uh, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter, and they do, and they take it to the head waiter, and the head waiter tastes it and realizes that it's not water, but it's wine. And he mentions there how much he made. I mean, it was a lot of it. There's a lot of wine that it was made there. 
Must have been a big wedding feast. Must have been a lot of people. Context, context, context. Would we assume that the Lord would make all this wine that is intoxicating to be given to the people? Remember, God never condones drunkenness nor drinking to excess. So the wine that is being spoken of here is that, that wine that's new, that wine that hasn't been allowed to ferment. Obviously, it's new, because a few minutes ago, it was water. Now, you can, I say that somewhat in jest, but I think you get the point I'm making here. God, Jesus is not going to turn this into an intoxicating drink and give it to a bunch of people. Context, context, context. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 13, this is the uh, day of Pentecost there when the apostles are gathered in the upper room. And they've been, they've been uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's come upon them, and they're able to speak in tongues. And, and the people that are gathered there are, are wondering why it is that they can hear it in their own, they're speaking and they can hear it in their own language. And there's some confusion going on, and someone says about this that they're full of sweet wine. This might account for the confusion here. They're full of sweet wine. Remember what we said about sweet wine? That it's, there's more sugar in that wine. Either the, the, the fermentation, either the yeast has been removed or more sugar has been added. But either way, they call it sweet wine because it has a higher level of sugar in it. The word here, wine, as we mentioned, is the Greek word oinos. That's what's used throughout. The sweet wine is actually a different word, and that word is it's actually pronounced glucose. Does that sound familiar? But that means the sweet juice pressed from the grape. That sounds like, to me, that's more of that new wine, the wine that's just come out of the grape, and perhaps maybe sweetened with some other kind of sweetener or sugar or something like that. Or it's wine, and from the context here, this is what we have to assume that they're being, that's being talked about here, it's intoxicating wine that has been sweetened. Because down in verse 15, as Peter stands up and is given an explanation as to why these people aren't confused. He says these men aren't drunk. So the, the, the reference here has to be that what they're talking about this sweet wine is they're full of sweet wine. They've been drinking wine and they're drunk. Peter says, no, that's not it. In this context, it has to be talking about an intoxicating beverage, which these were drinking. Romans chapter 14 and verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. We know Romans 14, is a, it's a chapter about conscience, what you do, how that affects your brother. Paul says here, if it's going to affect your brother negatively, then you ought not to eat meat or to drink wine. The context here, the word oinos is the same. What might that word be? Is it intoxicating or is it not intoxicating? In the context, what I get from this is sort of like the Nazarite vow. You don't know, you may not know how long the wine's been sitting around. So if it's going to make your brother stumble, don't drink it at all. Just cut it out. That way you don't run the risk of drinking something that's intoxicating. Context means so much. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's pretty clear, isn't it? How do you get drunk with wine if it's not intoxicating? 
in that, co uh, that context, obviously is talking about an intoxicating beverage, an intoxicating level of wine or drinking to excess. Don't get drunk with wine. In 1 Timothy and also in Titus, uh, 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus 1, these are the qualifications for elders. And it's mentioned there that an elder ought not to be addicted or given to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from all love. And we understand that, right? We don't want elders uh, to be addicted to wine, right? Interesting about the word there, it's actually a different word than just the oinos. This is par oinos. It's actually a different Greek word. And the actual Greek word that's, that's, that's being translated here, it means given to wine, or it means drunken. You don't want your elders to be drunken, do you? You wouldn't expect that. Similarly, about deacons, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy and verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond or sordid gain. Again, the wine, the word here is that same Greek word, oinos. Now, some try to make a distinction here that says, well, a deacon can drink a little bit of wine, but an elder can't drink any. Well, I don't think that argument holds up very well given what we've just been talking about. You don't want your elders to be drinking. Why would you want your deacons to be drinking? Now, they're not in the leadership position of an elder, as an elder would shepherd the flock. Their, their duties are different. But do you really think God would make that allowance? Well, it's okay for the, drink, the deacons to drink a little. Addicted to much wine implies that it's an imbibing, it's drinking wine to a level of intoxication. So we have to be careful about trying to make that distinction. We wouldn't expect anyone in the congregation to be addicted to wine or given to wine. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 23, as Paul is given the instructions to the young evangelist Timothy, he says, No longer drink water exclusively, exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That verse is very telling. First of all, let's understand, it seems that Timothy was only drinking water. Why? Maybe he was afraid of, of drinking some wine and give off that impression that he might be imbibing an intoxicating drink. Please understand, that's a, uh, an assumption. But what we can draw from it is what Paul tells him to do. He says to drink a little wine also for the sake of your stomach. There's a medicinal quality to wine as far as we know also that there's a purification in the, fer the fermenting process that gets out some of the impurities that might make people sick. And apparently Timothy had something going on that he might need a little bit of wine to settle his stomach. But not to the point of drunkenness by any stretch of the imagination. Because if you look in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How can Timothy be drinking wine for his stomach's sake yet still be sober? It has to lead us to believe that the wine that Paul is being talked about here is not intoxicating wine, not drinking to the point of being intoxicated, but simply wine, simply grape juice. Because he tells him to be sober. And once you take that first drink, you're no longer sober. As I mentioned, 
Drunkenness is always condemned in Scripture. In Ephesians 5 and verse 18, we mentioned a minute ago, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How can you be filled with the Spirit if there's something else that you're being filled with, and that drinking much wine, being intoxicated? Drunkenness is always condemned. Galatians 5 and verse 21, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There should be no question about drunkenness. Paul makes it very clear. Drunkenness is, will keep you out of heaven. Drunkenness is not proper for those in the kingdom of God. He says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 3, says, For the time has already passed, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The word there for drinking parties is the Greek word potos, which means a drinking or carousing. So let's make something very clear from this verse. All these things are in parallel. Sensual, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, abominable, abominable idolatries, and drinking parties. This is where, sadly, even brethren fall, uh, go astray a little bit thinking that social drinking might be okay. It might be okay to gather together and have a glass of wine. Peter makes it very clear that that's akin to drunkenness. If you're coming together and having drinking parties, that's akin to the rest of these things, sensuality, lust, drunkenness. So we need to be very careful and understand what Scripture says about it. Drunkenness is always condemned. When Peter makes it clear, so is social drinking. Instead of condemning drunkenness, what Scripture does is it commends sobriety. In 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in the second part of verse 5, it says, We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. You see the, the, the parallels there? Sobriety in the daytime, drunkenness in the nighttime. The things done under the cloak of darkness, often spoken of as things that are evil, done in the dark of night. Things that are righteous, often spoken of as being in full daylight. Letting the light so shine. And Paul makes that comparison here in speaking to the Thessalonians. It says the things, those who get drunk, they drink at night. But we are to be of the daytime. We are to be of the light. Again, from 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5. But you be sober in all things. Sober in all things. When the Lord speaks of the, the coming destruction of Jerusalem, he talks about how they needed to be ready to go. They needed to be sober. It means they need to be watching out because there's coming a time when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Guess what? There's coming a destruction at the end of the earth, not just Jerusalem. 
You think we ought to be drinking at night? You think we ought not to be sober? Brethren, we need to be mindful, sober, sober-minded, and not be involved in drinking. Remember what we said. Once you take that first drink, you're no longer sober. I made mention of priests and kings in the Old Testament. Peter reminds us as Christians what we are to be. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, beginning, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As a royal priesthood, we can't drink alcohol. Remember what we said back over there in, in Proverbs and, and, and uh, Exodus about the qualifications or, or what kings and priests shouldn't do? The Proverbs said that, that kings shouldn't drink wine or strong drink because they might not remember the things that they decreed. Likewise, priests of the, uh, of the Mosaic law ought not to drink wine or strong drink because they are holding in their hands God's will and carrying out the, the sacrifices and the worship to God for the people of Israel. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood, that we're kings, that we're priests. Don't you think that applies to us also? Do you think as kings and priests that we ought to be drinking wine or strong drink? How can we be drunk in the darkness, as Paul mentioned over there in 1 Thessalonians 5? How can we be drunk, be in the darkness, and be sober at the same time? Because he, Paul equates being drunk to those, that hap, those things that happen at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But he says you are to be of the day. We are to be sober and walking in the light. Those things don't go together. You're either one or the other. And so as we conclude, let's remember what's said there in Proverbs 23. It says, Do not look upon the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup. When it goes down smoothly. You see, there's, a, there's an enticing part about drinking. You know, it's enjoyable. Why else would so many people be involved in it? But the admonition to us, the warning to us is, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. You see, it might look good, it might go down smoothly, but the effects that it has on the body are terrible. It affects the mind, it affects the body. Think of all the complications that people have from drinking over many years. It affects the body adversely, and more importantly, it affects the mind. There's no room in a Christian's life to drink. To drink wine, to drink strong drink, to be anything less than sober. I hope you'll take this to heart and see, as I mentioned from the beginning, there's lots of things written in Scripture about drinking, and we just scratched the surface, really. But what I hope that this showed to you is that, really, it's very simple. 
God wants his people to be sober. Why? Remember what Peter says about the devil? That he's walking around on the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. And in the context, he's talking about there's a destruction that's coming at the end of the earth, at the end of time. We need to be watchful for that. We need to be watching after our own souls. We need to be watching after each other's souls. We can't do that if we're drunk. We can't do that if we're anything less than sober. I hope this message has been at least enlightening. We haven't talked much about the gospel of our Lord. But understand that the kingdom that was spoken of there that Paul talks about, that if you're drunk, you can't be a part of the kingdom. You can't be a part of the kingdom unless you're baptized into Christ. That's how you become a citizen of the kingdom. If you have not put on Christ, I would encourage you to make the necessary changes in your life and come to know what it means to be a child of God and to surrender in baptism and be raised up that new creature. If you're not a child, or as a child of God, if you stumbled, if you're not living the life that he would have you live, a sober life, and I'm not making any accusations, but understand that we are to be vigilant. We are to be sober-minded. Make sure that we're giving our best to God. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.